Hey everybody, it's Lonnie, and I am here to apologize to you. My audio track during the recording of this episode had some issues. It gets a little crackly in spaces. I have tried to edit that out and work the audio as much as I could, but sometimes you're going to hear a little bit of a crackle. But I hope it's not so bad that it distracts you from this fantastic conversation about The Incredible Hulk. You're listening to the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that's like someone poured a liter of acid into your brain. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, a-holes. We're going to talk about the Incredible Hulk. So speaking of the ugly, yes. <laughs> I mean, I I enjoyed this movie much more than I remembered enjoying it uh, the first time or the first couple times. But I mean, the Hulk is not a pretty guy. So you know, no, no, it's not. And and you know, it's funny because I always do like when I remember this movie, I don't remember it fondly. And when I go back into it, I'm like, no, this is a really good movie. <laughs> it this is actually how I have felt about Hulk comic books. Yeah. Over large swaths of time. So, mm -hmm. and that feels like a good segue into the comic book history. Yeah, let's go. Go with it, superhero scholar. What you got for me? Dr. Bruce Banner, a.k.a. The Incredible Hulk, was introduced in The Incredible Hulk number one, May 1962, created and fully realized by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Yeah, the power couple, right? <laughs> These guys have done everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, if Everything at Marvel has one or both of their fingerprints on it, even <laughs> before they were Marvel. Uh, wow. Because Captain America is co-created by Jack Kirby when they were still timely comics. So yeah, everything, mm -hmm. everything good and everything not so good. Because as much as we all want to talk about Stan and Jack never dropping the ball, that first run of X-Men was so bad it got canceled. And Marvel <laughs> never canceled anything. Oh, yeah, except also this run of The Incredible Hulk, but we'll get to it. Okay. So remember that Jack Kirby, a.k.a. <laughs> the King, created the first Marvel hero monster, The Thing. And he would design the initial Iron Man armor that was meant to be kind of terrifying also. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise to me, at least, that he was able to nail the look and feel of the Hulk. It's a little Frankenstein, it's a little gorilla, and it's all filtered through Kirby's larger-than-life style. The initial Hulk run only went for six issues before it was canceled. Along the way, Kirby handed the art chores over to Steve Ditko. That is the man who would eventually invent the look of Spider-Man. Uh -huh. And when I say that, not only the costume I can't believe he saddled himself with drawing every month, but also the kind of weird positions that Spidey would get himself in. Like that, right. that started right from that he needed to be off-putting and weird like a bug, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. The Hulk then went on to appear in an anthology book called Tales to Astonish. He was there until 1968 when Tales to Astonish was renamed The Incredible Hulk Volume 2. Like, it's just full circle. I can't support a book. All right. I can support a backup book. Okay, I'm back. It's fine. <laughs> now, remember that the early Marvel theme is that their heroes have to be monstrous or somehow set apart from humanity. Mm -hmm. The thing from the Fantastic Four is our earliest, like, number one example. But he's a monster who remembers what it's like to be a man. He's actually a really good-hearted person stuck in this horrible form and alienated from everyone around him. So, 
Taking a page from the classic strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the next Marvel monster hero would forget he was a man. Uh He would, in fact, actively work against returning to his humanity. And that's the Incredible Hulk. So initially, Banner's transformations weren't tied to his emotions at all. That may surprise you. Yeah, because it seems like such an essential part of the Hulk is that he gets mad and then he hulks out. But that's not how it was at first. Not at first. And I and we'll talk more about the TV show, but I think th- the comics had already figured out the anger angle before the TV show. But mm-hmm. the TV show really made that part of the public consciousness. But right. originally, he changed into the Hulk at sundown and back into Banner at sunrise. Oh, wow. It was literally tied to, you know, daytime personality, nighttime personality. Mm-hmm. Now, this didn't last very long. Uh, It wasn't long, I think, into the Avengers, five issues, six issues into the Avengers, when Banner figured out that stress was actually his trigger, which mainly (laughs) became getting angry, because that's Mm -hmm. very dramatic. Yes. But the part that fascinates me about that is, note how many of these Marvel concepts were works in progress at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they are doing iterations of their own characters on the fly, sometimes within the same issue, (laughs) just through exposition and plot device, until they nail the formula. They just Uh work it out as they go. So do they retcon that stuff? I mean, because there's a certain amount of continuity, right? When you've got a world that's this big, maintaining that continuity can be really difficult. So how did that work for a comic book reader? Like if you go in and you know a certain thing, like it's sun, sunrise and sunset, right? That's when this guy changes. And then all of a sudden it's something different. How do they, how do they, do they retcon it or do they just like, nope, this is how it is from here on out. We're just running with it. I guess you would call them retcons, although mm-hmm. since they were doing them sort of in real time, it was more like Banner slapped his head and went, of course, it's always been all about my stress level. Right. I just get very stressed when it goes day to night. <laughs> yeah. Well, I changed into the Hulk that first evening and then I expected it. So I started oh, to freak out. Oh, okay. All right. You know, you just you just putty over the stuff and then you run like hell towards the next plot point and hope sure. nobody looks. <laughs> and let me tell you what. It works most of the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, with something this long, I mean, with a, with a world that's that, you know, extensive, I think you kind of have to expect the, the retcon, which for anybody listening who doesn't know, that's retroactive continuity. They're, they go back and they just like whatever it was that came before, they just pretend it's something else, you know, and they just move forward and, and change that, that part of the storytelling. But um, but yeah, I mean, like in, in soap operas that and I've compared the comics to soap operas a couple of times. But I mean, that happened a lot in soap operas, too, where things would just be completely inconsistent with one character, you know, at this point from who they were two, three, four years ago. And they would just be like, you know, they would hand wave it away or, or not acknowledge it at all. And we just move forward. Yeah, that's a lot of how the retcons work in the mm-hmm. comics. Also, uh, you actually see another one of those with the Hulk's skin color. Mm hmm. Kirby wanted him to be gray. He uh-huh. wanted him to be very ethnically not, right? Mm-hmm. Like he he could obviously not join any particular ethnicity. He was separate from humanity, you know? Mm-hmm. But it was impossible for colorists of the day to maintain a consistent gray color. Uh-huh. Sometimes it came out black or pale brown. And a lot of times it came out in kind of a sickly green. And after seeing Hulk with green skin, I think in the second issue, Stan Lee officially changed it for all subsequent appearances. <laughs> and he's been green ever since, all right. except for that time that he was a gray Hulk in Las Vegas working for an organized crime family and calling himself Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> oh, yeah, that happened. <laughs> I love that. It was. It's pretty good. <laughs> that stuff is pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Gray Hulk is a lot of fun. 
So also, Banner wasn't originally working on peaceful research. He'd actually created a gamma bomb that was thousands of times more destructive than any nuclear device. Mm-hmm. And you'll remember from our Iron Man-related discussion of the Red Scare that right. blowing things up was a patriotic and worthwhile endeavor for every good man in the 1960s. <laughs> but you can see that this shifts pretty quickly because it had become medical research by the time the television show comes out in the late 70s. Yeah. Like, it started out, it was like, yeah, it's a bomb. And he gets caught on the test site and bombarded with gamma rays. Mm-hmm. But within uh, 10 or 11 years, and by the time we're trying to go mass market with it with a television show, hey, maybe not so much with the bombs. Right. <laughs> Another good move for retcons. Betty Ross wasn't originally a scientist in the story <laughs> because that simply wouldn't do in the 1960s. Right. Surely she had clothes to shop for or <laughs> hats to wear. I mean, it's it's not a good look. That's right. going to keep coming up as mm-hmm. we as we look at this. But she was still General Ross's daughter, and that's mm-hmm. how she came into contact with Bruce Banner and how they became interested in one another. But considering that Betty gets some of the best treatment of any woman in the MCU to date. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I gotta say, bringing her up to Banner's peer and co-researcher, brilliant move. I Excellent love move. that. I love that. I think that's fantastic. And yeah, <clears throat> she is absolutely one of the, the best written women, one of the most respected women that I've seen in these movies. So that was really nice. Yeah, I yeah I agree. I mean, I think we'll keep an eye on the ladies of the MCU, yeah. but I have a hard time naming... I can name one, like mm-hmm. off the top of my head, one other woman that I feel like gets the treatment that she deserves. And honestly, it's only in one movie. And then in her very next appearance, she's treated not yeah. so great. Yeah. Well, we so, will get to that when we we'll get, get to that. Because we got lots of women to talk about in the MCU. Yeah, so many. So many. And now, uh, although this summer also has moved my expectations as far as that goes, I will say, uh, we'll talk more about Thor Ragnarok in probably 2020. And, <laughs> you know, Black Panther's coming, but whatever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, much like Iron Man, we can't look only at that first origin in the comics because elements from a whole other Marvel universe also get introduced into this movie. Mm -hmm. There was a publishing initiative called The Ultimate Line, Marvel Ultimate, Mm -hmm. with more or less the same characters, but without the decades of continuity. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, That's all over now. They developed decades of continuity and then eventually... There, Reed Richards turned into a bad guy and tried to destroy the regular universe, and now it's all one place. Okay. (laughs) Comics, everybody. In the Ultimate Universe, Banner's research was directly tied to recreating the super soldier serum that had given the world Captain America. Mm -hmm. And although Cap's name is never mentioned in this movie, General Ross admits out loud that he had duped Banner into working on bold new super soldier initiatives. Mm -hmm. So, the world building, it's happening already. (laughs) Now, since we've had a recent acquisition of Fox by Disney, there's actually a little more fun for us to play with there. Okay. When Ross goes to get his most promising serum out of Deep Freeze, the tag on it says it's from the Weapon Plus project. Uh Uh-huh. X-Men fan favorite Wolverine has been described as the pinnacle of the Weapon X program for decades. Okay. But in one particularly great run of X-Men comics, it was revealed that he was actually the 10th iteration in the Weapon Plus initiative. So Wolverine's Weapon 10, not X. Uh-huh. And he's Weapon 10 in the same line of super soldier experiments that created Weapon Zero, a.k.a. Captain America. 
Wow. That's interesting. Now, yeah. You, that's all retcon. Like, <laughs> none of that is there since 1960-whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty good retcon, so we all were just like, all right. You right. Guys, when the going. retcon is good, just whistle and keep on going. That's right. Also, like Iron Man, we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little about Hulk and other media. Of course, we have a cartoon in the 60s, but the absolute best thing about that is the theme song. Doctor Banner. The most influential piece of Hulk fiction outside of those initial comics and then the MCU, obviously, had to be the television show that ran on NBC from 1977 to 1982. And here we get our first glimpse of a banner that's on the run from authorities and also his own demons, because all he ever does is move from place to place, trying Mm -hmm. to cure himself, right? Mm -hmm. Those character points are folded into the movie nicely, along with some of the melancholy that permeated that show. Oh, yeah. Now, again, we are of a similar enough age, I can ask you. You watched this show when it was in syndication, probably? Oh, I sure did. No, I I watched it, I think, when it was... On. I was pretty young. I was watching it. And I remember. It's sad it. as hell. Yeah. yeah, no, it is so sad. That that sad music that we have riffs of in this movie as well. But it is like literally the saddest piece of music, the sad walking away music. That's what I always called it as a kid. I am unsurprised to discover that its real name is The Lonely Man. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because if anybody's seen this, it's always the theme that's playing over Bruce Banner hitchhiking down the highway while the credits roll after his last attempt at a cure and a life have failed. And I don't know that there's ever been anything sadder on television. No, it is. It's really sad. Now, here's a question for you, because like you have the knowledge of the comics, but I know TV. Do you remember the name of the actor who played Bruce Banner in that show? Absolutely. It's Bill Bixby. There we go. All right. (laughs) I thought I was the only person who had that useless piece of information. Do you remember the name of the actor who played the Hulk? Lou Ferrigno, who we see in this movie. Okay. That's right. <laughs> we do we do see him. And I when uh, when I was rewatching the movie, I pointed him out to my son and I was like, when I was less than your age, that's, that's the guy right. that played the Hulk. <laughs> and he actually thought that was pretty cool. And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, he's still a he's still a big guy. I've actually seen Lou Ferrigno in person as wow. recently as this summer. And he is still a wow. huge guy. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I've never met him in person, but he's a big guy. And it's always fun to see him, too. I Yeah, I really like uh, when we can bring people who have had some mm-hmm. kind of tie to other iterations of the superhero in different media yeah. or whatever in the, in the movie. We get that with oh, the sure. pizza guy here, too, who did the voice of, mm-hmm. I think, the Hulk in that 60s oh, cartoon. Wow. So bring <laughs> those guys back. Let's do that thing. I love it when the Flash from the 90s turns out to be the dad of the Flash from I the 2017s. I know. It's real nice. You know. It's very fun to see that kind of that, that respect. And, of course, we always get the Stan Lee you know, um, cameos in every single one of these movies as well. And he has one here, too. Uh, that That is waiting for some sort of short film to yes. tie a bow on those. That That's just <laughs> waiting to happen. Now, I think it's safe to say our main villain in this movie is General mm-hmm. Thunderbolt Ross. 
And this is how it's often been in the comics as well. At least until Ross himself becomes a Hulk, a Red Hulk, and I'm not kidding, but the Red Hulk with Ross's mustache is epic. We may need to put that picture in the show notes. (laughs) It's fantastic. But our primary physical antagonist for this movie is Mm -hmm. Emil Blonsky, The Abomination. This character first appears in Tales to Astonish number 90, April 1967, created by Stan Lee and artist Gil Kane. Gil Kane is a legend. I like him a lot. I'm mostly in his corner for DC stuff, so we'll never get to talk about him again. But, you know. All right. We'll cruise past him for now. Originally, Blonsky was a KGB spy. Have we mentioned the Red Scare was kind of a big deal? Now, he exposes himself to the same gamma radiation experiment that turned Banner into the Hulk. Mm -hmm. And Blonsky gets to retain his own mind, but his physical transformation is even more grotesque. And he actually is more physically powerful than the Hulk, at least to start. Because we all know the matter Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets. Right. Mm -hmm. But the abomination is strong enough that Stan Lee had him beat the Hulk in his first appearance. Like, let's establish him as... The big bad guy, right? Yeah, a really dangerous opponent. Yeah. And he goes up against the Hulk over and over and over again until 2007 when he's killed by the Red Hulk. And sadly, at that time, Red Hulk was not sporting Thunderbolt's spectacular facial hair, and we are all poorer for it. (laughs) Now, there are Easter eggs all over this movie. We've talked about, like, the Weapon Plus ones and, you know, some stuff from Mm -hmm. the comic books. But there are also people. And you may have noticed one of these. Okay. Because the two the two human beings I noticed, the two human Easter eggs that I noticed, mm-hmm. are Jack McGeehy and Jim Wilson. Jack McGeehy is the name of the intrepid reporter that was always one step behind Hulk on the 70s show. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't remember him. He is the one to whom Bill Bixby says, don't make me angry. You wouldn't <laughs> like me when I'm angry. Like in the credits the every time. Line, yeah. He's mm-hmm. the guy. Oh, Now, for our movie, he's just a journalism student at Culver University, and he's there for a Hulk sighting and catches some cell phone footage. Incidentally, David Banner from the TV show worked for the Culver Institute when he did the experiment that turned him into the Hulk. So there's another little one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, you also have Jim Wilson, who in the comics, at least, is the nephew of the high-flying Falcon. There's no way in hell they pick up that ball in the MCU. Not a chance. (laughs) But he's another college student who was there as a bystander. But in the comics, he was basically there to give a human face to the HIV epidemic in the 80s. Mm -hmm. It's all very sad. We're going to just cruise right past that because it doesn't have anything to do with this movie. I'm a little surprised that they made him Jim Wilson in the first place. It's a deep cut. Like, we're not going to talk about it, but Rick Jones would have made a lot more sense. We'll just... Okay. Hulk's had a sidekick for a lot of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. And his name is Rick Jones, and we have never seen a Rick Jones in a Hulk movie or a TV show, at least live action. It's bizarre. He's actually the kid that Bruce Banner saves from getting hit by the gamma bomb. Oh. Like he goes out to save this kid on the on the testing grounds, and mm-hmm. it's Rick that he throws into the trench right as he gets hit by the bomb. So maybe the fact that we move it away from a testing ground makes it harder to have some kid in danger. I don't know, but you don't get any Rick Jones. Yeah, and I can see it complicating things. Plus, you know, having a sidekick kind of works against this whole lonely guy, you know, sad thing that he has going for him because he doesn't have anybody, you know, that can be with him, that can be safe around him, you know, so he goes off and is on his own. Yeah, yeah, it really undermines that. We'll talk more about that when we get to the Avengers, actually, because that's an ongoing problem for the Hulk joining teams. Right. What? You know, so... (laughs) 
Now, last but not least, I don't even know if we can call this an Easter egg Mm -hmm. because it's actually like a seed planted for a sequel that we're never going to get. Right. Samuel Stearns in the film is Mr. Blue, the Mm -hmm. the jack of all trades scientist, I don't know, bioengineer that's helping to cure Banner of the Hulk. In the comics, he eventually becomes a villain, Mm -hmm. a super genius villain called The Leader. And you start to see part of this after Stearns turns Blonsky into the abomination. Mm -hmm. He falls to the floor and some drops of Banner's blood drip into his head wound. And you see his head start to swell weirdly. Mm -hmm. It's so fast you could miss it. But that is definitely a hook for the next movie that we're never going to see. Right, exactly. But he smiles like this happens and you can see that he's like, I guess, feeling his head change shape you know and he has this really weird smile on his face and it's it's kind of an interesting beat but yeah goes nowhere we have no mention of this guy i mean i don't know if he's going to show up at some later date but i kind of highly doubt it but oh it's not happening at this point i can't imagine it we're never going to get another hulk movie yeah i don't think so i don't think so and the leader is very much a hulk villain Mm -hmm. um in many ways he's one of my favorite superhero tropes which is like the opposite number villain you know the one who is the equal but opposite. And so where everywhere that Hulk is super strong, the leader is super smart. Mm-hmm. So his brain literally outgrows his skull. Oh, you know, wow. it has to swell and move around. He's able to overcome people mentally. If he can touch you skin to skin, he can control your mind. Wow. Um, especially the Hulk, because mm-hmm. the Hulk is simple minded, yeah. you know. So that Easter egg plot seed It doesn't matter because we're never getting that movie, but Samuel Stearns was supposed to be the leader. And I think that the way they're retelling the history of the MCU now (laughs) is that the Hulk was always meant to be a standalone film. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's something they were clearly setting us up for something with that moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was I'm sure that it was contingent on all kinds of things that then did not happen. Sure. (laughs) You know, but don't tell me you put that scene in there. And didn't have a leader idea, like just, you know, floating around back there. Mm -hmm. So because the parts of the Hulk comics that make it into this movie aren't as weird as I usually like to throw at you just to see your reaction, (laughs) we're going to play a short game of Good Idea, Bad Idea, starring other versions of the Hulk. Good Idea. Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. the Mm She-Hulk. She is Bruce Banner's cousin. She gets shot. She needs a blood transfusion. Nobody's around except for Bruce. He gives her a blood transfusion. And what do you know? She hulks out. (laughs) I love it. I think that's great. Oh, it's fantastic. I love She Hulk so much. Yeah. Eventually, the change becomes permanent. Aww. And so, no, she loves it. Jennifer hates being Jennifer. She loves being She Hulk. Oh, that's awesome. So she was happy when she got stuck. Like everybody, there's a whole scene Several scenes of people like coming to give their condolences and she's like, no, nah, I'm strangely cool with it. No, I'm good. I'm a superhero. It's awesome. So she so she doesn't have that same kind of like internal angst that Bruce has. No, she does get stronger the more emotionally invested she gets, but mm-hmm. it's not the same level of rage issues that Bruce has. And she doesn't ever go back to being like regular human version. She's just constantly hulked. This has danced around a little bit over the years, but for the most part, she has either chosen to stay as She-Hulk or been stuck that way. Wow. Now, here's here's my favoriteest part ever about about She-Hulk. She's always been a lawyer. (laughs) Even as She-Hulk. So she continues to to have a law practice while she's all Hulk? Hell yeah, she does. 
And in fact, in oh the last God. 10 or 12 years, she I has would actually... Hire her. <laughs> for real, it's, sometimes they play her as like superhero lawyer, mm-hmm. like because who else would work with her? But sometimes she's just like, nah, I do probate. <laughs> you know, I don't know I what to tell it. you. I love it. That's awesome. And for real, in the last 10 or 12 years, she's probably shown off her power of attorney as much or more as her Hulk strength. Wow. So, I love it. <laughs> my hopes for She-Hulk in the MCU are sky high, but the odds are not. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I would love it. I mean... She's so great. And she gets to do a lot of Hulk things without some of the baggage. And the idea of this statuesque green woman showing up in court Uh to argue over your parking tickets or whatever. (laughs) It's delightful. I wish she was practicing in Syracuse. I would absolutely hire her. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because her uh, in her last iteration as an attorney, her chief investigator is Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat. Oh, Probably my like number one favorite comic book character of all time. Wow. Okay. That's really complicated for me to say and would be several podcasts unto itself. Because right. right now people are going, what about Batman, Joshua, you liar? But <laughs> Hellcat's great. And uh-huh. she would have got, she would have settled your problems. All I'll right. I like it. So that's good idea. Good-ish idea. The Red Hulk. Mm-hmm. After decades of trying to, to beat the Hulk... General Ross instead beats him at his own game and turns himself into a red version of the Hulk. And it's exactly as crazy as it sounds. (laughs) When he gets madder, he gets hotter, like literally temperature wise hotter. Wow. Although, let's be honest, if you've seen the mustache, who could resist it? (laughs) Not many men could pull off that mustache. Oh, I mean, it's it's a Hulk with red skin and Tom Selleck's facial hair. I'm in love with him. Come on. (laughs) Now, our odds of getting him in the MCU, I would say, are negative zero. Like, it's never going to happen. But I got to admit to you, I would love to see some motion capture of William Hurt yelling until his face literally turned red. Right? (laughs) Come on. Okay. Bad idea. Red (laughs) She-Hulk. None other than Betty Ross. Who, this is not that weird. She's been dead a few times. She got turned into a Hulk villain called the Harpy. (laughs) Comics are batshit. We both know this. But I have to admit, again, after revisiting this movie, I would love to see that motion capture of Liv Tyler hulking out. I know. That would be awesome. (laughs) She's so great. She's like the the sad scientist in this movie. And then I just want to be like, just get mad, girl. Just get (laughs) mad. Just get mad. (laughs) She's she gets a giant sword uh-huh. in the comics, like an Asgardian sword. Oh my god! And and I just I don't know what movie that would happen in, but I want it. Right, I want it. just for the the sheer insanity of it, you know, go big right. or go home, like literally in this case. <laughs> yeah, yes, big and red. So, but that's a but. Listen, in the comics, it's a terrible idea, and really in the MCU, it's an even worse idea. Yeah, except for the Liv Tyler side. That's the only. That's the only it thing would, I got. It would so. be fun to see that. But Betty is, you know, really such a great character and so well done. And she links Hulk to his humanity. And so having her Hulk out, I think, would would bring this to a space that isn't really where this story lives. Oh, good Lord, no. <laughs> but it would be fun in the ridiculous sense of, oh, my yes. God, you know? Yes. Yeah. Fun, but stupid. That's, yeah. 
All right. Well, that was a great comic book history. Now I'm going to hop into the production history. Um, This movie was released on June 13th, 2008. So about a month or so after Iron Man was released. So these two were like a one-two punch. The Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of coming strong out of the gate. But they're very different movies, um, both in terms of the story space that they exist in. The Incredible Hulk is a much more internal kind of story, um, which is really interesting for a superhero movie because those are so externally based. The writer is Zach Penn, maybe best known for The Last Action Hero in 1993 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So that was a big deal. Now, have you seen that movie? I have, but not in a really long time. And I remember liking it at the uh-huh. time, and it might be the first like big brush with metafiction that I remember uh-huh. now that I think All about right. it. Because Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie is a movie action hero who comes out of movie world to help a kid. Wow, so he's he's the character, not the actor playing the character? Exactly. Oh, that is interesting. Also, ACDC did the song for it, Big Gun. So okay. kind of tied to Iron Man in the sure. most roundabout way possible. Well, there you go. You got that. Uh, Zach Penn also did the story work. Um, he didn't write the script, but he, he came up with the basic story for X-Men 2 and The Avengers. 2012's The Avengers. And The Avengers has a pretty solid story for it. I think same thing for X-Men 2. X-Men 2 yeah. is probably the high point of that first first three movies. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I, I got to say, as a writer, Zach Penn has got chops. This movie is structured like a Swiss watch. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. It is very, very interesting what he's done. We're definitely going to talk about that in a little bit. The director was Louis Leterrier. He did the 2010 Clash of the Titans movie. No one thanked him. Which, of course, I didn't see that because I don't well, see any also, of these movies. I never leave the Listen, house. <laughs> I did see it. You're good. You're good forever. Okay. Well, no, I remember the the like 1980s Clash of the Titans with Harry Hamlin. Yeah. I remember that one. Because it was one. formative to my experience. Sure. <laughs> no, I, you can cut all of this if you like, but I actually wrote an essay for the Cinematropolis last month about how Clash of the Titans affected my whole life. Oh, that's interesting. We're going to have to go for up real. link in the show notes. We're going to have to go no read one, that. No one will say that about 2010's Clash of the Titans. No one will say that. Okay, good to know. Um, he also directed Now You See Me, um, and Now You See Me 2 uh, is out now, but he didn't direct that. So I don't know. I'm not really familiar with his work. I think the only movie um, directed by Louis Leterrier that I've seen is actually this one. I think same for me. Well, I saw Clash of the Titans, but I'm trying to forget. Okay. <laughs> All right. Great. So the budget for um, for the Incredible Hulk was 150 million. Iron Man's budget was only 140 million. So they actually got more money to make this, and they made a ton less. The final box office gross worldwide, everything was 263 million, which is still you know a profit of 113 million dollars, which seems like a lot of money to us, but studios don't really see it that way. Right. Because it made less than it actually, you know, it it profited less than it actually cost to make. And they have certain, you know, um, algorithms for that deciding what's a success. Iron Man, however, had a profit margin of 445 million. It came out with a a final um, box office of 585 million. So I think we were talking last week about how if Iron Man hadn't been such a huge success, the MCU might not have kept going. Um, even though they were doing this movie right on top of Iron Man, they were doing these at the same time and release them a month apart. I think that's true. I think had it just been the Incredible Hulk coming out at that point, it might have just killed
killed the MCU dead, but because we also had Iron Man at that point, you know, giving us such a huge audience, um, then that actually spurned the rest of these these movies and is responsible for all that happening. So that's pretty cool. And it's not fair because this movie is good. This movie is legit good. I know. It, it makes me, every time I see it, I'm like, wow, I, I always remember it less fondly than when I see it. And when I see it, I'm like, yes, no, this is actually really good. Okay, so one of the things of note about this movie is that the role of Bruce Banner is not played by Mark Ruffalo, who we see playing him in the Avengers and everything where he shows up from here on out. In this movie, playing the role of Hulk is Edward Norton. Um, And that was kind of interesting. It was widely reported when The Incredible Hulk first came out that Norton rewrote a lot of the script after he came on board and then found most of his rewrites on the cutting room floor that apparently left a bad taste in his mouth. There were a lot of reports of clashes between Louis Leterrier and the studio as well. So this was not a happy set at all. And neither Leterrier nor Norton have been asked to come back And Norton said that he wouldn't want to anyway because he did not care for the experience. There's a lot of, you know, bad blood, I think, um, on the set. People did not enjoy making this movie. And maybe that's why, I don't know, maybe there's something in that, that it was an unhappy experience. And it's such a kind of a sad and emotional, you know, tonally, it it goes to a completely different place from Iron Man. Iron Man is bouncy and fun and there's ACDC, you know, there's all sorts of like really (laughs) fun stuff happening. And we've got Robert Downey Jr. being really funny and charming and all of that. Whereas what we have here is this really kind of dark, sad, sort of lumbering story. I mean, it moves really nicely. I mean, the structure is beautiful and it moves beautifully. And I've got a lot of stuff to say about that. But I don't know, maybe there was something about the unhappiness on the set, the fact that it's kind of a sad movie that just didn't get people as excited about the Hulk as they are about, you know, other characters in the MCU. I mean, I can see that. We talked about how much they got away with on Iron Man Mm -hmm. minus script plus chutzpah. Yes. You know, and... (laughs) And this has all the script, and I don't want to say none of the chutzpah, because yeah. this is a well-put-together piece. Everybody is acting. These are good actors. Yeah. Right? I mean, these are great actors in mm-hmm. some cases. Um, it's just, yeah, it's so bizarre. It is totally really different. I'm surprised it didn't do better business. Yeah. But I also feel like it's a successful film if you're not standing right next to Iron Man. Which is lightning in a bottle. Yeah, no, Iron Man really was lightning in a bottle. And it had so much bounce and fun and energy and chemistry to it. It was just amazing to watch. But when it comes down to storytelling, to like the basics of storytelling, I kind of think that Incredible Hulk is a better film. I would agree. I would agree. I kind of circle around to think that Iron Man is actually a lot darker than we usually wind up talking about it because of all that chutzpah. Right. But it kind of like wraps that bitter center in a sweet candy shell, whereas the Hulk is just like, nope, life is miserable. It's like everything is awful and miserable and sad. And yeah, Um, one of the things that I want to talk to you about right away, of course, last week with Iron Man, we were talking a lot about origin stories, right? We had Mm -hmm. that whole first, you know, act of Iron Man, which was all about that origin story, about his transformation from who he was before to who he is now. And we had some things to talk about in the beginning with that fractured tease structure not really working that well. 
Um, and also spending all this time on the origin story. And then we kind of shift gears, you know, without having a through line that, you know, as we talked about, we could have put in easily uh, to make mm-hmm. that work a little bit better. Here we have our origin story basically laid out for us in a musical montage with credits rolling. I mean, this is such an efficient use of the origin story. And then we get right into the central narrative conflict. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about that, because I know the origin story is a huge part of the, you know, the comic book superhero aesthetic. So how did, how did you like that as, as an origin story? So I have a, I don't want to say a unique perspective because it's not like I'm the only person who's thinking really hard, uh, (laughs) AKA too hard about superhero stories. Right. right? (laughs) But I actually am kind of over origin stories and I'm more like, let's get to the point of what they're like as superheroes. (laughs) Now I think with a lot of these, what had been until the MCU picked them up backbenchers, Mm -hmm. Which I'm including Captain America, right? Like, I mean, my mom only knew who Captain America was because I bought a bunch of comic books, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it was not like everybody knew. Right. Everybody knows Spider-Man, right? Everybody knows Spider-Man. There are certain heroes that everybody knows. My whole life, I argued that I was going to get a Justice League movie before an Avengers movie because nobody in Justice League actually needs an origin movie. Right. We've got them sorted out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know. Wait, what's that Flash guy like? Dude moves fast. It's fine. It's Keep right. Going. Exactly. <laughs> like, we don't have an extensive origin story. But I thought that this one was expressed so wonderfully because we're seeing it's these things perfect. from his perspective. We're seeing that she got hurt. And of course, that, you know, devastated him. He's got these flashes of memory, but he doesn't really remember all of it. We see Thunderbolt, Ross, we see Betty, and we see his green skin. And it is this wonderful and beautifully efficient way of expressing all of that material. By the time we're done with that, you're like, we know exactly who this guy is, exactly what's going on. And boom, we're in Brazil, opening up with 158 days without incident. Yes. Which shows us exactly where our protagonist is and what his goal is. I mean, at this point, his goal is to keep that shit locked down, right? Absolutely. We're not letting anything happen. And it's so clear. It is so beautifully and efficiently expressed. And we're telling our story walking. I love this purely from the perspective of a story nerd. Now, I don't have that background in comics. I do acknowledge that the origin story is part of that superhero aesthetic. And so that there is sort of a value to the same way voiceover is part of the noir Mm -hmm, aesthetic, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Right. At the same time, like I hate origin stories. Because it's never a story. It's just, this is this is what happened. This is our backstory. You know, we're explaining how this normal kid becomes a spider superhero, you know, or whatever it is that's going on. Um, and the, the reworking of that origin story of how did this person get those superhero, you know, powers. Um, you know, I feel like there needs to be a space for that in superhero stories. But I absolutely hate it because it screws with your story structure. It puts in this long delay where you're going back to the how did this happen before you can even get started and get your story in progress. So I hate the origin stories. They drive me crazy. I understand that there's a need for them and I'm trying to make my peace with them. But this is exactly the way I want all of my origin stories. This is me going back to the Incredible Hulk and Iron Man. And and I admit, I kind of showed up to Iron Man tired of origin stories because I was like, let's Mm -hmm. get to the good stuff because I've been reading these forever. But I'm going to say this one, The Incredible Hulk, tying its narrative more towards the most recognizable version of the character and his, Mm -hmm. I'm always traveling, I'm always trying to cure myself so that we could cruise past 
the origin. And with mm-hmm. Iron Man making that transition so integral to the actual narrative. Yeah. This is how you should be doing it. You know? Yeah, I mean, both of them. If you have to do an origin story, the way that they did it in Iron Man, I think is really good. I wish, like we said, that they would have pulled us into a through line so that we could see the mm-hmm. antagonism of the overall movie in that first movement, because I think that would have tied it together much, much nicer. But I mean, seeing that transformation of who he was before to who he is now, I think that the origin story actually worked out really well in Iron Man. But here, I love that we just did this so efficiently. You also when you have origin stories told and retold and retold, you also wind mm-hmm. up in a weird space where I have seen more dead Thomas and Martha Waynes than I've had haircuts. <laughs> if I never see another dead Thomas and Martha Wayne, I'm good. I've got them yeah, stored right. up. I get it. I get it. So, His parents are dead. I get it. Yeah, it's, let's, let's go. Yeah. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Can we, Let's talk about the time when he learns mystical Kung Fu. That sounds interesting. Right. Right. Anyway, it's the same thing with Uncle Ben. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, stop killing Uncle Ben's. We know. Right. Move on. Right. Um, We get it. Uncle Ben is dead. We got it. Yeah. Apparently, they shot a lot of the origin stuff straight. Like they had it Uh scripted and shot it because they weren't 100% sure how they were going to deal with it once they got into the editing room. Because you just had another Hulk movie, I think, five years before that was very much an origin story. But this one was going to come back around to that Bill Bixby late 70s, the, the, the story that people are more broadly familiar with. They eventually come back to a place where they were like, we don't actually need to tell them this, mm-hmm. but we can show it to them for all this emotional impact because there's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, it works. It works perfectly. Yeah. And, and that, that so many days since last incident is like, well... I know Bruce Banner's got that in a journal with little hearts and flowers right. around it, but I, I call that a countdown. Uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's really nice and it expresses so beautifully. I mean, one of the things that you need to make a story work is that having a, a protagonist with a clear goal, right? Protagonist with a clear goal, antagonist with a clear goal. Those goals are mutually exclusive. If one of them wins, the other one loses, you know. And we see that the the central narrative conflict, which is the two goals in conflict, um, is Bruce Banner wanting to, um, f- like, control this thing as long as he has it and ultimately get rid of it, is mm-hmm. in direct contrast with Thunderbolt Ross, who wants to get the blood and make a ton of hulks, Right do this super soldier thing, right? So in order for, you know, Bruce Banner to to meet his goal of curing it and getting rid of it, then he is actually taking that away from Thunderbolt Ross. So while we don't have clarity on Thunderbolt's goal throughout the, the early stages, we just know that he is pursuing Bruce Banner. And we have that inciting incident yeah. where he cuts his hand. Shut that off. Yeah, turn it off. And we see that drop of blood fall down into the conveyor belt full of bottles. Oh, yeah. It so masterfully lets you know yeah. that this little world he's built for himself. Yeah, it's over, it's guys. It's apart. Like, it's only a matter of time. Apart. And it was just yeah. him being a good guy, which which is also kind of a cool part of Bruce Banner. Like, he's saying no to the day job, mm-hmm. to the, you know... That'll put him on records and stuff and just trying to be a good guy. And it results in his entire world coming yeah. apart again. Yeah, absolutely. It's so absolutely. Good. And I mean, it's it's really interesting, too, that he is just dedicated to doing the right thing. 
You know, the here is a guy who doesn't have the kind of like internal conflict the way that, say, Tony Stark does, you know, with his this essential deficits in character right? for Tony Stark. We have a guy with a strong sense of character, but there is a monster living inside of him. And I think that when you have that monster living inside the way that Bruce Banner does, the fact that he is a good guy, that provides that internal conflict because he does get angry. And when he gets angry, this whole thing explodes. So here he is training, you know, doing his breathing exercises with his guru there, you know, really trying to like cure his anger, handle his anger, manage his anger. Fear, no good. So emotion, controlling. Working so hard on this just to keep other people safe until he can find this cure, which is also a big part of his his goal. So we see these goals. They're very active goals, you know, which means that your character is, is chasing something rather than avoiding something. So we have a very active goal set up right at the beginning. We know what this guy wants. We have complete clarity. And that gives you the ability to tell your story. You know, it builds the stage upon which you tell your story. And it's just so beautifully, beautifully done. I am I am absolutely amazed at this structure. And it is like a Swiss watch. We go through this Brazil sequence. That's the first 30 minutes. That's our first act, right? Until he comes out as Hulk. He's being chased and then he has to get on the road again. Um, Wakes up in Guatemala, which is 4,000 and miles away. I mean, does Hulk fly? Is he flying? The guy moves really fast. A uh, comic book answer is that leg muscles that strong allow you to leap mm-hmm. miles at a time. Yeah. And that is usually how Hulk gets around is by leaping very, 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 very far. Yes, because that's 4,000 miles to Guatemala. I mean, I mean that's, that's not one leap. I'm not trying to say that's one go. <laughs> No, he's pretty serious business. Um, But, you know, like at the end, like he's and the thing that I like, too, is that, you know, basically when you set up a story, you've got a protagonist with a goal and antagonist with a goal. And then one of them, when the story resolves, one of them wins, one of them loses. And so here we have a protagonist with two strong goals. One is to control his anger and keep the Hulk suppressed. And the other is to get the cure. Right. So the cure, the search for the cure is the big goal for the whole thing. The, The repressing his anger, being able to control the Hulk is his goal for the first act Mm -hmm. and he fails at the end of the first act it is thunderbolt ross who wins you know and he fails he fails to keep the hulk you know uh, under control of course the circumstances are extreme so you know it's we don't expect that from him but this is something that for him himself we open up this first act with his personal failure which brings us into just even more darkness even more stress for um for Bruce Banner. And then he has to go home, right? He has to go back to Virginia to Culver University in order to get the data that he needs for Mr. Blue, who we will, of course, meet later is is Dr. Samuel Stearns. So we have all of this tightening up on him so wonderfully. And that first act is so beautiful. And then it escalates because he has to go where his antagonist is. And he has to go where Betty is. And if there's anybody he doesn't want to be around, it's Betty. But he also does want to be around her because he loves her. But he doesn't because he wants to protect her. And he already hurt her once, you know. So this internal conflict rides so beautifully alongside that external conflict. And it just, I absolutely adore it. That is how superhero stories are supposed to work. Yeah. All of your internal stuff is supposed to be externalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my always example of Spider-Man holding Aunt May's pills and he's got to get across town with them. But over there, 
the shocker is robbing a bank. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. wh- which thing do I do? It, it's it's his internal thing, externalized. That's how it's supposed yeah. to work. These people get it. Mm-hmm. I am also always in danger of turning every story into a noir conversation. Oh, yeah. But this is a deeply noir take yeah. on superheroes. No, it because does have the a answer... really strong noir aesthetic. I'm glad they didn't go for the VO. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's yes, that's a complicated piece of yeah. <laughs> of our film history, mm-hmm. but um you get that a little bit actually with his conversations with Mr. Blue though. Mm-hmm. I mean, they managed to put interiority yes in there without the voiceover, but it does the same job as the voiceover. So efficiently. Okay, and here's another thing that I have to admit and it is just a nerdy thing for me. I am so glad that they went in for a tight close-up of the words on the screen. So tight that you can yeah. see the pixels. Because ordinarily what we get is the Hollywood operating system, commonly known as the HOS. <laughs> and it is everything is so large that it's all on the screen and you can read it from four blocks away. You know, And it's always got this ridiculous you know, graphic interface that just looks at every button is huge. You know, um, I like that it, and I don't know why. Like, I'm a, I'm a technology nerd, and I'm a film nerd, and I'm a storytelling nerd, and there's just something about the fact that they chose to zoom in to show us what was on the screen, rather than giving us this whole ridiculous operating system that we have to look at. That pleased me very much. I was very grateful to Louis Leterrier for that. No, Lonnie, of course it did. I, I mean, you get. <laughs> World building and character building mm-hmm. stuff in those choices. Yeah. Uh, it had to look like a computer that he built. Yes. In, you know, in Brazil. In right. Brazil mm-hmm. off of stuff that fell off of a Radio Shack truck 3,000 miles north. Right. In a cave with a box of scraps is what yeah, I'm saying. Right. Once again, um, <laughs> you you see that he is smart and mm-hmm. technical, technologically savvy. Yes. And he is closed off. But not so closed off that he hasn't somehow built up a a tiny network, you mm-hmm. know, somebody to talk to about these problems because that's how science works, right. you know. And then the super close tight shot of the screen is for us. I mean, that yeah. is that interiority. We see one word, home. Yeah. Oh, my no. God. And what that represents, home. Yeah. He doesn't say Virginia. He doesn't say anything. He says home. God, it's heartbreaking. So, yeah, yeah, of course it delighted you because it's masterful work. That's how that kind of thing works. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's why I get excited about those noir stories where the and that's why I I am tempted to talk about The Incredible Hulk as such a noir story, because Banner doesn't win. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he doesn't get the thing he wants. Right. Right. He doesn't actually get his goal. Um, There's a little bit of a postscript where maybe he gets a version of his goal, but I always say that the big deal with noir stories, how you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're in a noir story, is that somebody asked a story question and the answer was no mm-hmm. or yes, but. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That the the ending is complicated. It's not, it doesn't end in victory for our protagonist. And the thing is, for a story to work, it doesn't have to. All we have to do is resolve the conflict. Yes. We have to, you know, that's all we need to do. Who wins, whether it's the antagonist or the protagonist, does not matter. And when you have this kind of essential darkness, I mean, I think that 
we have some of that kind of grungy noir visual feeling and we're working a lot with color which is one of the things that, that noir once we get outside of of you know the black and white movies really works with color and shadow and and a real representation there with color um so we do have kind of a visual representation of of noir here um we're not doing the classic you know noir hero with the voiceover and then the femme fatale and all of that nonsense we've completely weeded that out but we do have what is essentially a dark story about you know like the a good man surrounded by corruption right except for that this good man is within the corruption itself that the corruption is within him it's in his blood you know that he can't get away from it and that's one of the things one of the classic things about noir is that we have a good man surrounded by corruption and he has already been touched he cannot be untouched by that corruption it will always be within him but he can protect other people and and that's what we see banner doing and there are elements of the femme fatale, but not in the usual awful mm-hmm. way because yeah. Betty is very dangerous to him Yeah, because mm-hmm. she is such a lure, like her allure wants to bring him back into home when it's not time yet. And yeah. you know, he's torturing himself with that newspaper clipping constantly. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. he is a man brought low by a woman, but not in the usual. But it's not this like, because in noir, we have the femme fatale and it's no, sex. I, it's that she I'm, uses I'm in, sex I'm enjoying to the inversion. <laughs> right. She uses sex to control the man and it's all about sex and that's where her power is. Yes. Here, the power is not sex. It's love. It's love. Yes. It's a completely different. It, that's mm-hmm. actually why I said I'm in, a, I'm in danger of turning lots of conversations into noir <laughs> is because when I see the elements, but then I see them inverted and kind of move past the the boundaries that the time or whatever put on right. the genre mm-hmm. and invert it or turn it into something. I mean, it's actually worse that love is the lure. Yeah. There's well, I mean, no, no it's downside to love. It's oh, darker. wait, yes, there is. I'm super you know? dangerous to her. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. No, it's it's so incredibly. Oh, God. And that moment where she sees him at the pizza place. And chases out into the um, into the alleyway looking for him. It's just it's so incredibly powerful what they do and they do it so efficiently you get across everything in this relationship you know how much she loves him how much she cares about him how much they respect each other it's brilliant i think that it is not an accident and is a very powerful choice that she is the one who chases him yes absolutely not there is such a way that you could turn this to where the woman chasing the man is not her actualizing herself you know Mm -hmm. that that it no, I'm I'm just I'm part I'm part of his work. I'm his appendage. That's not what's happening. Yeah, He's trying yeah. to get away to protect her, and it's the right choice. It's not paternalistic. Yeah. He's also trying to not destroy literally everything around him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she chases after him anyway. Yeah. Having seen the Hulk, let's not forget she saw she may not have gotten a great mm-hmm. look because there's kind of a reveal later in the movie, but she knows she yeah. got hurt. She knows that all this destruction happened. She's not and an that idiot. He disappeared. You know, I mean, she knows yeah. all of this. And the thing is, what I love, too, is that she's not we're not playing this for false conflict. She's not furious with him for leaving her. And why didn't you trust me and all this kind of stuff? She completely gets it. She understands exactly what he's doing. And when she goes after him on the on the bridge in the rain. <laughs> and they see each other. 
and there's no anger. There's no like played up romantic conflict. The romantic conflict here is so beautifully expressed. They can't be together because he can't trust himself not to hurt her. You know, and he loves her so much. So this romantic conflict is built beautifully. We give her complete agency over herself and her choices. I love the fact that she sees him. She runs out into the alleyway and then she goes back in and she doesn't question herself. She's like, I thought I saw something, but I don't know because, you know, I'm just a girl. But she's like, no, I saw him. What's going on? Right. You know, I mean, she is so secure in herself. And I think honestly today, I would say the best written woman in the MCU, you know, with with the exception, like I'm not looking at the TV, but like the movies, you know, I think yes. she's the best yeah. written woman. And she's so strong. She's so smart. You know, she's not playing games at all, you know, with him. Um, it's it's yeah, really wonderful. She gets mm-hmm. it. I mean, you could understand if she were angry. Right. Because they loved each other and he left and he couldn't explain it, but she doesn't know all the details, right? You could understand if she was angry, but she just isn't. But she's she just isn't. that she happy understands to see him. And she knows him. She knows who he is. So she trusts that if he left, he had a good reason. I mean, I, I love that. I love that relationship that isn't based in ginning up as much false conflict as possible. And because we're not ginning up that false conflict, we're allowing the romance to be. If they have this false conflict between them where they're just shouting at each other because you left and you, you know, all this kind of stuff rather than, oh, my God, thank God you're okay. Like that is genuine love. And that clears the way and makes the space for this real, genuine romantic conflict. We think of romantic conflict in terms of the fight and the bickering and the misunderstandings. But real romantic conflict rests on something that no amount of talking is going to change. No matter how much you talk about it, it's never going to make Juliet not a Capulet. And these two that they that they didn't choose, that the writer did not choose to add on, which almost always happens in in romantic stories to add on that layer of fighting and arguing and all of that and just have these two work so beautifully together as a team that makes the heartache it ramps up that noir element that sadness oh my god i mean i think it's just beautifully done and for me it puts a sharp point on the few times when they do actually argue yeah in fact you might even blink and miss it and not realize that they had an argument, but she let it go. And the place I'm talking about is after Betty has full blast seen the Hulk mm-hmm. and she sees Bruce in him. Yeah. And when she tries to tell him, no, I'm pretty sure I saw some of you in there. Yeah. He kind of flips out. Yeah. I don't know. In the cave, I really felt like it knew me. Maybe your mind is in there. It's just overcharged and can't process what's happening. I don't want to control it. I want to get rid of it. And it's and it's reasonable mm-hmm. because he's been holding this thing at arm's length saying, it's not a part of me. It's I'm stuck with it, but it's not me. Right. And she's saying, no, I think it's I think you're there. You. Right. And he can't deal with it. And she understands he can't deal with it. And she lets it go. Yeah, I know. And that is really nicely done. Oh, it's, yeah, it's so, it's so strong. Yeah. yeah. No, it's just, it's absolutely wonderful. And then we move into this, you know, we've got the showdown at the college. So we've got act two is all about getting this, this data, which of course he then swallows and throws up later. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I've had a flash drive go bad just from being in my purse for too long. Like how in the world does he, whatever, I'm sure it's fine. Um, But Well, let's not even talk about the strength of 
Hulk's digestive juices. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine, but apparently that is like one serious piece of business uh, USB flash drive. So I'm I'm feeling very good about that. Um, but he goes, he gets this this data that he needs. Then they're in Act Three. They're on their way to New York to try to you know to um, find this guy. Um, and we have we have this like Betty and the Beast thing going on, right? You know, we have Beauty and the Beast, which is one of these classic things where we have the the woman who sees the man and the monster you know, who can handle the monster and the man, you know, and she is just there in that in that classic aesthetic that we've been seeing since, I don't know, probably way before King Kong. But King Kong is one of the most mm-hmm. like, I think, visual representations of that, you know, and we see her standing. She's small. He's huge. She touches his hand. You know, um, there's just this tenderness between them. And I think that she's right. I think that he is in there. Obviously, he's in there, you know, because he sees her. And he just wants to protect her. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's part of it. It's the fact that they got the mannerisms in there mm-hmm. is just a cherry on the Sunday Because yeah. the fact is, he protected Betty. Yeah. Hulk doesn't protect anybody but Hulk. Right. And he's not really that great at protecting Hulk either because Hulk's indestructible. Mm-hmm. You know, like he just barrels through. But he stopped and helped Betty. So it's like uh, the conversation of whether or not Banner is in there is over yes. already. Yes, exactly. But, you know, but he is so he's so about like, you know, I just want to cure it. I want to get rid of it. I don't want this thing in me. And he can't he can't kind of deal with that idea of integrating you know, which, of course, ends up being where we end up at the end, that he has no choice but to try to integrate. Yeah, yeah. The the closest we get to a yes in this noir picture mm-hmm. is not, yes, I cured myself. It's, well, I'm getting okay with the fact that I turned into a rage monster. Exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> we see that at the end, right? We have that one shot at the end. It's 31 days since the last incident, right? You know, and he's in that cabin in the woods. And then we see his eyes turn green and he smiles. And he's fine with it. Yeah. 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 I, I really, we will talk more about this when we get to Avengers, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I would love to have seen the theoretical story in between here. Yeah. Where, where we go from this wry smile to I'm always angry. Like, I don't even feel, they don't quite mesh up. And no. I'm not saying that there's no cog in between them that could uh-huh. do that. But they don't on their own quite mesh up. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to get lost in the space where I'm trying to. Yeah, I tell love a leader story. story between the also... Norton Hulk and the Ruffalo Hulk because the Ruffalo Hulk, you know, when we meet him again, we see him. He's in India, and um, and uh, Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow goes and finds him, you know, to bring him into the Avengers Initiative, and we see him where he still feels it still feels like he's on the run from himself. Whereas at the yeah, end definitely. of this movie, we really see an integrated Banner and Hulk, and I mean, we kind of get that by the end of. Avengers also like will there will be so much more talking about it when we get there yeah but there is just yeah it just slips enough of a gear that I'm like I want that movie yeah you know I like let's story. get the movie I like that let's story. get the story with the leader and uh you know putting brain against brawn and where we also find out that no actually Bruce you have some pretty deep-seated rage issues yeah and that that is what's coming out mm-hmm. you know it's just that the expression is extreme. Yes. You know, deal with the fact that the Hulk is you. You right. are the Hulk. The Hulk is you. Yeah, I want that thing. I, I, I want, want that, that too. I know. I think it's really interesting. <laughs> All right. So one of the things we haven't talked about much is the abomination. Emil Blonsky. Yeah, well, is he? That's because he's got a job. <laughs> he does his job. Uh-huh. We needed somebody 
for the Hulk to punch. Yes. It obviously wasn't going to be William Hurt. Well, we need somebody who's his physical equal, right? Who is right. at the but same eventually, space. Eventually, right? Yes, exactly. And that's, you know, Blonsky fills that role. Mm-hmm. They actually give him a couple of interesting character beats that don't make him sympathetic per se, but they make me get him. Yeah. You know, what are those? The com- the conversation with General Ross when Ross says, "What are you about 45?" Yes. and he goes, "39." Uh-huh. And and there's not even really they're not even wry about it. Yeah. Like Thunderbolt's immediate response is takes a toll, doesn't it? I mean, that's it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, well and that the way he lives his life is really hard on him, you know? Mm-hmm. And he goes in and he sees the Hulk, you know, and he starts and when he realizes the moment that he realizes that that could be a power that he could have you see, like, the hunger in his eyes for that. He wants to be that thing. He wants to be that powerful, you know? And, uh, and I find that really interesting. But one of the things we've got here with these, with these bad guys, you know, Thunderbolt Ross is just a bad guy. Emil Blonsky, the first time we see him is in Brazil during the raid on Banner, right? One of the first things we see is he shoots Banner's dog. Like... I got to tell you, if you want to make somebody a bad guy, have him just kick a dog, let alone shooting a dog, have him just kick a dog. And we will be like, that guy is irredeemable. There is nothing (laughs) because dogs like really seriously, dogs represent the most innocent, you know, the most innocent of anything. Anybody who hurts a dog is the most irredeemable villain. You will you will never see one of those characters redeemed at all. So we have these these almost uncomplicated bad guys they are black hat villains there are no Mm -hmm. shades of gray in these guys they're both just bad bad guys they know exactly what's going on and they're trying to do it anyway thunderbolt ross has that wonderful moment with uh with betty's boyfriend leonard should be an incredible danger as long as she's with him he protected her you almost killed her i give you my word her safety is my main concern at this point you know it's a point of professional pride with me that I can always tell when somebody's lying. And you are. You know, I mean, they're so, like, simplistically bad and evil. And why, like, I like a complex villain. I like a villain where you can see that there's some internal struggle, that there's something within them that could possibly be redeemed. But neither one of these guys really has that, at least Thunderbolt, especially not until the very, very end. And even then, it's more like, let's just solve this bigger problem. Yeah, Yeah, there is an element of self-serving. It's self-serving. It's I'm going to have a lot of public relations to do, right, For, for destroying Harlem. Yeah. So I will push back just a little bit because they are very black hat bad guys, but they have almost the perfect level of complexity. Like there is a space Mm -hmm. where you have whatever, however many stars we're operating at with Thunderbolt Ross, like a very important general who at the end of the day, wants indestructible soldiers for America, right? Like, I mean, he has an ideal. He's just willing to do all kinds of horrible stuff to get to that ideal. It's right. The ends justify, completely the, justify means. the means. And Blonsky's in the same boat mm-hmm. when he says out loud, I, I'd really like to put what I know now into the body that I had as a 25 year old yeah. or better yet, the Hulk's body. And again, it's not mm-hmm. good by any stretch, <laughs> but he wants to be, he's always wanted to be a good soldier or at least a good. Right. But he shot a dog. No, like here's don't the thing. Get me wrong, we have Lonnie. a moment where he shoots a dog. That means that he is just bad. No, I'm not There's arguing that they're good guys. guys. 
<laughs> I am arguing they have. But you can kind of see where they're coming I, from. Yes, I can at least. There's an ideal that they're shooting yes, for. Yes, I want to be mm-hmm. the best possible soldier. I want to be the yeah. best possible general. Well, the way that I'm the best possible mm-hmm. general is indestructible soldiers. Well, the way I'm best right. soldier is indestructible soldiering. I mean, yes. they're not, it's not great. But, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't make them good humans. But they are complex enough. And I would say mm-hmm. complex enough because our protagonists, and I would count Bruce, obviously, but also Betty, yes. are so complicated Yeah, that if we had to juggle a legitimately conflicted antagonist, I might have become overwhelmed, you know? I think you're right. I think you're right. Usually, I like a more complex... I like more complexity in my heroes as well. I hate white hat heroes. I hate capital G good that makes me crazy I hate it um, and here you know we're able to have capital G good within um, Bruce Banner because he is also you know fighting this essential corruption that is yeah. within him that is internalized to him and that makes him so complicated and interesting and she is so beautifully written and and built and I think that you're right I think that having the villains in this circumstance, circumstance. be that dark and and that like holy dark, you know. And I mean, I understand they're they're fighting for ideals, but this is the means, you know, that they're that they're going to get to the ends are are really really dastardly. Oh yeah. So um so I mean I find that kind of interesting, and I do think that the balance is good. And I never like I thought about this kind of from the perspective of this is how I think about things. Like who are these characters? What are their strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities? We don't see a lot of vulnerability in either Blonsky or Thunderbolt, even when his daughter is in danger. You know, Thunderbolt does not seem that vulnerable about mm-hmm. it. He doesn't seem beaten up. He's not emotionally torn up by this. He's a little he's a little worried, you know. Right. I mean, all, all all in all, he'd rather have her at home, you know, binging friends on Netflix or whatever where she's nice and safe. But when it comes right down to it, he's not torn up with like guilt or regret or anything about the danger that he put his daughter in. You know, so um, so I do find that usually to be a little bit flat, but. In these characters, I think you're right. Even though they are black hat, they are given complexity. And we do believe them as people rather than just as these cardboard, these flat cardboard bad guys. They're interesting bad guys. They're complex bad guys. They're just wholly bad. And I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. They might, in a way, reflect some of the complexity of our protagonists. Because you have Mm -hmm. Bruce who has a monster inside. Yeah. And is trying to keep a lid on it. And you have two guys that look like good guys and on the inside are monsters. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to keep a lid on it. Like they have yeah. put themselves in a place where they can hitch their monster to the plow and it actually makes them look better. Yeah. You know, and so because we have the opposing force of Bruce Banner who looks and acts like a good man but has a monster inside, it's like, I don't know, these... These guys who are just monstrous on the inside look more complex than mm-hmm. they're reflecting some of Banner's, uh, I guess by not having a conflict over it, they are reflecting Banner's conflict somewhere. Yeah. No, I think that they are. I think they're, they're kind of working as an amplification chamber for that internal conflict and that complexity that he has. Because Where did they this don't movie come from? It's so good, right? Okay, now let me talk about one more thing I want to bring up before I yeah. get to the big discussion that I really want to have, and I'm so looking forward to having that with you. I want to talk a little bit about color. 
right? We have yeah. this use of color in this movie. Like green is the Hulk color. He is Mr. Green. That is the identity that he takes on, right? He creates the cure in the early part where he's trying to create the cure from the flowers and he's testing it. It turns from green to purple, which is mm-hmm. the color, which on the color wheel is the opposite of green, right? So yes. purple is the thing that's going to cure him. It is the opposite. Um, but green and purple are also the classic colors of the Hulk. He has those purple pants, those purple shorts that, mm-hmm. that always get torn up. Um, and so when you see him, he is his own opposite in color in the in the way that they choose to to use those colors representing him um and the soda that they make in the factory in brazil that is this acid green um and then betty the the purple pants betty actually buys him those (laughs) iconic purple pants which is a scene that i love stretchiest ones they had man what do you want? Right. right. <laughs> so purple is the cure. She's the cure, you know, um, yeah. and the purple is his humanity, which covers up, you know, the parts of himself that aren't appropriate for, you know, television and whatever. Um, I, I find this all very interesting how they they tie into those color stories in this really interesting way. And I wanted to know what you thought about that. I couldn't help but notice it. And I'm actually still chewing on what I think the purple represents. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's not, because I do believe, along with Betty, that the Hulk is Banner and Banner is the Hulk. And right. So I'm not, you know, like, I'm still chewing on it even now. I don't think it's the cure per se or, right. or, um, or his humanity exactly. But it's, mm-hmm. that, it's shocking how much there is to think about in that contrast. Right. But the last little bit of civilization is that he's got pants to cover up his delicates. You know what I'm saying? You're not wrong. Size delicates, right? You're not wrong. That's the last representation of, of, you know, civilization. You know, he is this melding of the civil and the savage. And so here we have purple in this representation of civilization, which are pants, you know, it's you true. Much more it, civilized than pants, right? Um, cover so your shame is right. the first rule of civilization. I think. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't know. I find it like, and again, like I don't have a handle on it. I'm not really sure what the clear representation is, but I find it fascinating. The shocking thing is, I think you and I could do an entire episode just on talking about the green and the purple. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, so there is that much going on. Yeah. In the movie. Yeah. Are you interested in a little bit of the comic book reason for the green and the purple? Absolutely interested. So we talked about how the gray was impossible to maintain anyway. And right. so he winds mm-hmm. up green. Before that, it was a lot of like torn white shirts or lab mm-hmm. coats over mm-hmm. his gray skin. You know, like real white against gray. Like, let's mm-hmm. show that off. Once he becomes green and, and you have cartoons and things where... We need him to look the same in every scene. Mm-hmm. You run into that color wheel, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Now, before there is the Incredible Hulk, way before, there is Superman. Mm-hmm. And his big villain is Lex Luthor. For a long time, Luthor wore prison blues. Seriously, yes. that was it. There's a whole <laughs> s- symbolic thing there. But when uh-huh. he finally got an outfit, he got a green and purple outfit. And the reason he got that is because he had to pop next to the red and blue Superman. Mm -hmm. And so green and purple, by accident of Lex Luthor, have become... You see it with Green Goblin next to Mm Spider-Man. They're traditionally villain colors, Mm -hmm. visually, right? Not always, because you've got like Iron Fist is running around in a green and yellow costume that is not... You know, that is also 
off book right. as green far as arrow, the reds. Green lantern. I mean, those are heroes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the green but and purple combination specifically denotes typically villainy. villain. Not not mm-hmm. like across the board 100%, but thanks typically, to Lex yeah. mm-hmm. and Green Goblin, you can pretty much go, well, that's a bad guy. Right. So, and the fact that, again, mostly by accident of creation and coloring that we're going to just make this up as we go along. Yeah. Hey, radiation's green, right? Seems legit, you know. <laughs> um that we wind up with the Hulk being covered in green and purple. I mean, he's not a good guy, but villain is probably too strong. It's yeah. it's there's a whole other level outside of the movie. Right. <laughs> of that green and purple. It's it's super fascinating. Mm-hmm. No, it is. It's really interesting. And I don't think that the movie, I don't feel like the movie is deliberately playing with that. Although when they have the cure be this purple fluid in the vial, I feel like that's deliberate. They may, I mean, you know, death of the author, we can see what we need to see sure, here. Sure, sure. Absolutely. But they may have just been playing with the fact that they knew that Hulk was that green and purple mix. So yeah. whenever, that's all they may have been doing. But purple but is the civilized. Purple is the cure. Purple yeah. is the thing that, that keeps him in contact with his humanity, you know, that keeps his delicates hidden, you know. <laughs> um, I, I find it really, I find it interesting. I don't think we have, I don't think there's a, like a real strong textual evidence for, for a thesis there that purple yeah. represents civilization. But it kind of feels that way to me based on where I'd seen it in this movie. Well, the, the coolest thing to me is that they may have just been playing with an old element of the character, yeah. but they built such a strong narrative around it and mm-hmm. that they didn't do things by accident. Even if they right. weren't doing exactly the thing that we're seeing, they created mm-hmm. a space where that actually makes sense and isn't yeah. just Easter eggs thrown out for us. You know? Yeah. Um, it's not all Falcon's nephew. Sometimes... <laughs> Purple and green matters, right? Sometimes it does. All right. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about, and this is like one of the most interesting things to me about this movie, like the philosophical discussion of science and moral responsibility. Now, I swear that there's a principle out there or there's something that states that scientists should always pursue knowledge, even when the application of that knowledge could be dangerous or used for nefarious means. And I don't know what it is. I'm going to call it the Stearns principle for now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's I am prepared to be corrected by our smart listeners. But for the moment, it's the Stearns principle. If somebody knows what that is, I tried to look it up on the Internet and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I'm like, I swear that there is a, a theory about that, about that science should always be pursued. So. Like, you know, what is the scientist's version of the the Hippocratic Oath, right? You know, Mm. I mean, is the immoral use of scientific knowledge on the scientist or on the people who would use it to these nefarious ends? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think it's super complicated. Um, I mean, it's complicated in real life. Obviously, right? Yeah. Like the the men who woke up in the morning and put on ties and lab coats and went and worked on the Manhattan Project yeah, were doing it because they fully intended to be good Americans who were saving more lives than they took, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, Japan, how do you feel about that? Right. Right? Mm-hmm. It's so complicated in real life mm-hmm. that when you layer the possibility of actual supervillainy, like... like over-the-top supervillainy on top of that, it mm-hmm. it becomes just a big ball of complication because you get the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest uh, explorers of the cosmos out of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, but by the way, one of them is forever going to look like a monster. Sorry, guy. 
<laughs> you know? And on the other yeah. side, you've got, well, that Spider-Man kid's turning out okay, but uh, hey, radiation. How's yeah. that? I don't know. And and then in the middle of all that is really the Hulk, a living mm-hmm. atom bomb, you yeah. know? Um, did we do the right thing? I mean, I, I do think that there's, this question is part of the reason that we shifted away from the bomb and into medical testing yeah. mm-hmm. at, over the years because right. we needed him to also be an MD. We needed him to be a person who wouldn't pursue scientific knowledge to the detriment of literally everyone around him. Right. Who was dedicated to, you know, the advancement of science. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and the thing is that the advancement of science can be used like, you know, you think about like a knife, right? People make knives and people cook with them. And that's great. <laughs> people also stab each other with them. Not yeah. so great. Right? Where's and the line, that, right? right? Yeah. But I mean, it's not on the knife maker. You know, it's on the person who wields the knife. So when scientists pursue science, no matter what, when they push the edges and the boundaries of what can be done into what possibly could be done, you know, Samuel Stearns, right? Samuel Stearns is obsessed with the science. He wants to advance knowledge when he's, you know, ranting to uh, to Bruce about this mm-hmm. during that scene. He's talking about all the applications. You didn't send me much to work with, so I had to concentrate it and make more. With a little more trial and error, there's no end to what we can do. This is potentially Olympian. This gamma technology has limitless applications. We'll unlock hundreds of cures. We will make humans impervious to disease. The lives that can be saved, you know, because we're doing this, like there are so many things that you can do with this knowledge. But what is really important for the scientists is expanding the boundaries of knowledge. But there is a lot of danger there. And I mean, I got to say, I come down on it on it's not on the scientist. The scientist's job is to expand knowledge. The scientist's job is to push those boundaries of what we currently know into what we will know and what we will understand. And if they don't do that, we don't advance. But, you know, the responsibility, the moral responsibility is on the people who would take that knowledge and use it for nefarious means. Now, when you look back at the bomb, you know, um, that we dropped on Japan, you look at that. And at the time, there was this big narrative about that saved all these lives because we just ended the war and all that kind of stuff. But I, I don't think that you can look at pictures of Hiroshima, of Nagasaki, and not see the the violent, horrible human cost of that and how evil that act was, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a complicated thing. Um, But I think that the application is on the person who uses that application and how they use it. And the moral question belongs to them, not the scientists. I think that's where I come down on this. What do you think? I am not a scientist myself, clearly. Oh, me either. (laughs) But... I'm I now I'm just not sure that there's actually a space where working scientists, research scientists are operating that is so divorced from reality mm-hmm. that that they are only working on the science, you know? Yeah. I mean, probably there are parts of the process that are that, but your immediate thought, every, I feel like everybody's immediate thought is Stern's thought. Think right. of the application. Think of right? the applications, yeah. And with that in mind, I feel like there's got to be some push and pull there. Yeah. I don't want a scientist to spend as much time being a moral philosopher as he is a scientist because he'll probably be pretty poor at yes. most. 
But I do think that there is a space where it's, I mean, I don't even know what this looks like, but it kind of feels like if I were running a science company mm-hmm. that I would also be like, okay, who's my, uh, I need my chief executive officer in charge of moral responsibility. Yeah. And I mean, seriously, I, I need, I need a department of philosophers right talking about to kind of draw that line and, yes. to, and to, to talk about it but yeah i don't know like i i don't think that's actually happening most of the time honestly maybe so not. i don't know i don't know i'm gonna have to to call uh my friend anya from um the hallowed ground story cast because she's a scientist and maybe see if she can give me something oh about god this. yes please yeah i would love to actually you're freaking me out now so i'd kind of like to hear what real life is like or I'd, maybe I'd i like don't to hear that too i know because but when you think about scientists it's like i can i can completely see that part of the argument which is advance the knowledge mm-hmm. you know like all knowledge can be used you know for good or for bad and it's how you use it but you're right like the application if you're building a bomb there's pretty much only one use for the bomb and that is to like murder like a ton of people and in horrible horrible ways so yeah i don't know i mean it's it's i think it's a really interesting question i am just at the beginning of asking this question but i love the way this movie asks that question because it starts not with sterns it starts with banner right Mm -hmm. banner ignored caution he did these experiments on himself without knowing what that would that would do you know so he is responsible i mean this isn't something that just happened it wasn't an accident in a lab he did this to himself for myself, because we see the banner that we see in this movie, I backfill that as him just feeling so strongly about the concept and yeah. not being allowed to take it as far. He's like, I can save lives. Just let me do the test. Yeah. And no one will let him do the test. So he just does the test. Just and it's it. irresponsible, mm-hmm. you know, and it causes a huge problem. But he's still doing it from a good-hearted space he's where doing he wants it from to help a good people. space i mean you know the road to hell what's it paved with right yeah. you know i mean but I, none of that is in this movie like i am prepared to backfill that because i want that right banner, but i mean know? it is like i think that no matter what you could say that banner was reckless and Definitely. you know and and probably like this happened because of recklessness and hubris yeah you yeah. Know? So I find that so interesting. And I love how how crunchy we are in this movie with those philosophical questions. You know, do the ends justify the means? What is the moral responsibility of science? Um, I find all of these really interesting questions and we don't answer them completely in any one way or the other. We simply present the questions and then invite the audience to think about, you know, where those lines are. Um, but we don't have this kind of pat answer for anything we let it live in this in this ambiguous space of uncertainty and it's another thing that i love about this movie but i think that all of these reasons why i love this movie may be part of the reasons why it didn't do as well it is complicated it is complex it demands a lot from the viewer it is structured beautifully told beautifully and characterized beautifully and i think that when somebody goes to a movie theater looking for you know a fun action superhero movie they're not looking to be philosophically challenged at a very deep level you know it's true i'm not going to argue with any of that mm-hmm. at the same time through at least phase 1 and on into phase 2 the one thing that we can kind of across the board declare is a bad idea Mm -hmm. is the military industrial complex. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the MCU is very anti-military industrial complex. There's really no way to get around that fact. Mm -hmm. And that is baked 
at least as hard into Iron Man as it is into The Incredible Hulk. Oh, sure it is. It's just handled in such a light way that you don't realize where you wind up. Whereas this is like, you need to look in the mirror, Bruce Banner. Right. (laughs) Well, we get a candy shell with Iron Man that we don't get with Hulk. Hulk doesn't have a lot of of lighthearted moments. Although, as we move into the next segment of the show, where we talk about our favorite parts, I'm going to pull out the one lighthearted moment. (laughs) that I really liked. And it was when uh, Betty curses a blue streak at the incredibly reckless cab driver in New York City. Are you out of your mind? What is wrong with you? baby, you don't like a good ride? You know, I know a few techniques could help you manage that anger very effectively. Well, because he nearly got them all killed without realizing it. And I don't mean a car crash. Exactly. Exactly. But then then he says, well, I can really help you with, you know, dealing with that. She's like, zip it. You know, I love that moment. They're adorable. Aren't they? They're just adorable. It's so, so great. All right. So what is your favorite part? (laughs) Well, much in contrast. Big down note. Yeah. Um, I kind of have to set the scene a little bit. It's it's at the very end. I guarantee I didn't notice this the first time I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. It's at the very end. Betty has just convinced Hulk not to murder the Abomination. Mm-hmm. He's Hulk's bellowed his triumph over the Abomination. And then he makes that pretty calm eye contact with Betty. Yeah. Nobody has said anything. And then there's just helicopter noise and glaring spotlight. And then for just a moment, just a second... Hulk looks tired. Like it's before he gets angry and runs away because we Mm -hmm. get that right away. But there for that moment, he's just so damn tired. Yeah. And you realize there is no actual freedom in being the Hulk. You think that there is no one can stop you, et cetera, et cetera. But no, it's just exhausting. It's just a drain on him. Mm -hmm. And the only way he can react to that in that space is to be the angriest thing in the world until he gets away and chills out and what do you know becomes banner again yeah it's just and then from there it's an immediate you know chase across the rooftops Mm -hmm. and it's just it's powerful like it it choked me up a little bit this time it was no that is you're absolutely right droops i mean the whole his whole body it's mostly a pretty tight close-up of his face Mm -hmm. but you get enough of the shoulders that he's just like yeah Just, yeah. Oh, it killed me. It's really beautiful. The expressions that they were able to get in the Hulk were just beautifully done. It's it's true. I mean, it's not, the technology is not what it will be here in a few years when we have to do it again. But Mm -hmm. they wring every ounce of gravitas that they can out of what they have. Oh, they do. They do. It's really, really incredibly done. So... Big surprise, the guy who's a huge fan of noir fiction, that's his favorite part of Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Seems legit. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm a big fan of romantic comedy, so I got my little moment of fun there. <laughs> Again, I am excited for the rom-com superhero movie. And uh, we discussed, since recording the last episode, Ant-Man and the Wasp may be that one. So, I would love that. <laughs> fingers are crossed. Fingers are crossed. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of 2010's Iron Man 2, a movie we are almost certain to disagree on, so that should be fun. I think that will be 
be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I, every time I go back to Iron Man 2, I have a different response. So I'm going to be interested to see how it is in this run through. All right. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I'm at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Jasha Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up a holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you. And you are our heroes. (laughs) So show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in in this conversation. Yeah, because it's a great conversation. So we really want you guys there. And by all means, if you can help us out by giving us a a great review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. The links to Apple Podcasts and both of our Patreon pages are in the show notes. So until next time, remember, you wouldn't like us when we're hungry. Those character points get folded into this movie. I'm not doing it. It's not going to be like villains. I'm not doing it. I'm going to get it right this very next time. You're going to do It's fine. (laughs) So these two were like a one-two punch. The MC universe, MC uh, Marvel Cinema. uh, Sorry. (laughs) 